Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. You do have the passage in your outline. Come to the second chapter of this urgent letter of Paul, who writes to stem the rise of extortion that's creeping into the churches that he and others worked tirelessly to plant and nurture. The churches were planted and were growing strong initially, and they were effective because of the gospel of God's grace that was being preached and taught and mulled, considered, embraced. The gospel was bringing freedom where there had been previously slavery, slavery to the notion that they could earn God's favor. And every human being knows as they search their heart closely that they cannot earn anything before God if they're really honest. Usually they'll grow to hate God or reject God when they consider the fact they can never reach to the level of his righteousness that is required for fellowship with him. And so the gospel brings freedom because we have that righteousness in Christ. And through Christ, we have relationship with God. And now we're free from all that encumbered us before and weighed us down. But the problem is that as soon as it comes in, it seems like, This message of freedom is assailed by the message of works, that you've got to add something to it. And Paul writes to correct this. That's why he writes Galatians. And in particular, we come to a passage where he is, on one hand, writing to show the struggle that we must engage in to maintain gospel freedom, gospel purity, the true gospel. At the same time, he's trying to emphasize his equality with the other apostles. There's not a hierarchy among the apostles. Uh, God calls these men to be apostles, gifts them to be apostles. And so when he speaks to uh, John and Peter and James, he's not speaking to people that he's waiting for a counselary decision to come from, but rather he's expressing what the gospel is as it has been given to him directly by God. And the apostles together say, yes, that's the same gospel we have received from God. So it is God, Christ, the head of the church, who appoints the apostles, who give us the scriptures. And we have here Paul writing to show us the struggle for gospel freedom as it happened in his day and as it continues to happen in ours. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me to mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have saved us by your amazing grace through the finished work of Christ on the cross in the empty tomb of Easter morning. While we rejoice thinking of our freedom in Christ, we acknowledge that our lifelong struggle against legalism still rages. It wants to creep into our hearts and into our churches. Lord, please free us from thinking that we can add to the work of Christ some action or work that we do. Give us eyes to see the freedom of the gospel and our need to hear it anew every day. Pray this in the name of Christ, the one who has granted us freedom from the penalty and power of sin. Amen. Okay, someone, somewhere, somehow convinced American suburbanites, probably the only people convinced of this in the whole world, that dandelions were bad. Now millions of Americans engage in an embarrassing, in my opinion, and constant struggle against dandelions taking root in our pristine and prime lawns. Now, round about April, most of you went through this. You uh, don't have to admit it. We're all in the same boat of embarrassment together about what these things have done to us. Uh, but round about April, when the weather begins to warm, the same time the dormant grass starts to spring to life, the first little flowers come up and they're just, just under where you can mow them. Just come up and just kind of get in your face and let you know they're there. That's what happens all around this area, as I note, in my own yard as well. Uh, keeping the dandelions under control is a constant struggle. It never ends. You're constantly attacking with all sorts of things. Now, if you do not engage the dandelions, at some level, they will overrun you. One great example is uh, a place I pass every day when I go home from church. I will turn right from 159th onto Black Bob, and you don't go but a half a mile up the road, and you see two different subdivisions uh, built there by two different developers. No offense to anyone in either of those subdivisions. But on the right side, you can see on the, the east side that uh, the subdivision has clearly given up the struggle. Total yellow. I mean, more as yellow as you'll ever see anything. And on the left, total green. A few years ago, they were both totally green. So they either changed lawn care service or whatever the case. Now we have one side that looks like a sunflower seed, but only with dandelions. And the left side, green. See, the struggle has to be engaged upon over and over. You don't just simply till up the ground, put seeds in it, water it, and let it come up green and go off and never address it again. If you do that, it will creep in because someone somewhere will have one of those wicked things that grow to seed and blow into your yard and land there. And they'll grow if you don't check it. They will. They just will. I can see the difference just in that little ride home. The west side engaging the struggle where the east side seems to have given up the struggle and is now ruled by the Taraxicum, a large genus of flower plants, otherwise known as the dandelion. Well, ever since the gospel was announced in Genesis chapter 3 of the scriptures, announced to God's people, ever since it made its way into time and space clearly as God reveals it, ever since then, it has been a constant struggle to maintain purity of the gospel message. The constant temptation is to add to what God has done for us in Christ. We so badly have to have some amount, even a little bit of merit to say to God that I did this. Some part of our offering has to be us and not Christ. Religious people do it all the time. 
Maybe the majority of churches today have people, even in our midst, that think that they have done something to earn favor with God. Taking away, as it were, from what God has done completely, the righteousness of His Son. We battle this from the time we are born to the time we die. Paul writes to address the fact that this message of the gospel must be maintained. It must be struggled for. We have to engage in the battle against our humanism, our belief in self, that we deserve God's favor. Instead, Paul brings the message of freedom, freedom in Christ, where there is the only true freedom. Free from the wrath of God now because he takes away our sins. Free from the penalty of God's of, of sin against us. Free from the power of sin over us. Free from the burden of the guilt of the sin that weighs us down. In Christ, we're free of the load of stress upon us that tells us that we cannot be accepted by God. Instead, we realize He loves us and what Christ has done. And it all comes through Christ and His merit, applied to us by faith in what He has done. Faith means receiving and resting upon Christ and His righteousness. This is the message of the gospel. This is what Paul engages in struggle for, and we must today, personally and corporately. Paul's ministry illustrates the constant need to engage in struggling for the gospel, gospel freedom in particular. Now, what is the gospel that Paul preached? We have been studying this book together, but we can never say it enough. What is the message of the gospel that Paul is giving? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 4, you remember as he is introducing the book, he says, with regard to Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. In a seed form, he already gives what the gospel is. The work of Christ for us by the will of God to deliver us from the just desert of our sin. Later, and we'll get to this passage next week, in Galatians 2.16, Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Later, in Genesis 3, or in Genesis 6, verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God. So we see this gospel that Paul preaches to be the same one the Scripture teaches throughout. The Gospel of God, it's called. The Gospel of Christ, it's called elsewhere. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of God's Son. The Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel of the Grace of God. Paul even says, my Gospel, as he speaks of it in Romans. The Gospel of Peace in Ephesians. The Everlasting Gospel in Revelation 14. All synonymous for the Gospel. Christ pays for our sins on the cross. Listen to just two brief mentionings of the content of the gospel that Paul gives as he's writing to other individuals and churches. To Titus, he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love that passage because it gives us the right order. As he saves us by grace, we're compelled to do good works and become zealous for good works. Good works come from being subdued by God's love. Not zealousness for good works equals acceptance with God, but acceptance with God promotes good works. Big difference. It's the difference. He says to the Corinthians, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. 
He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, Paul preached the good news that by trusting in Christ and His work on the cross, on our behalf, our sins are forgiven and we are made right with God forever. Paul had to struggle to maintain this. This message was constantly assailed. That's too easy, people say. The old Jews who had been going through their rituals and their rites look at these new Gentiles and they're so happy. You know the definition of a fundamentalist is, right? Someone who's sure that someone's having fun somewhere and they're bothered by it. That's what these, these Jews were. They were fundamentalists, radically, that you had to, yeah, yes, Jesus, but you also had to do this, this, and this. We had to do it. You've got to do it. Kind of the older brother and the prodigal son. So Paul has to constantly struggle. As he tills new ground, plants the gospel, fruit comes forth, he moves to other churches, but he has to write back to the other churches, send people to those churches consistently and constantly impress upon them the need to struggle for the gospel and gospel freedom. Well, how did he struggle for this freedom? Our text reveals some of this. Look at verse 4 in chapter 2. We see the problem revealed once again, the very issue that he is facing, the Apostle Paul. Verse 4 says, Because of false brothers secretly brought in, who sleep, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so they might bring us into slavery. Now, we learn from other passages. In particular, the councils at Jerusalem. There is one more private meeting that Paul has in Acts chapter 11. Many scholars believe this is referring, this passage we've read, to Acts 11. Others believe it's Acts 15, the big council of Jerusalem, where the gospel is considered again, and this idea of Jews making Christians be circumcised in order to be Christians. Uh, this, this happens in Acts 15 and is addressed in a major official way. Either case can apply to this text. Paul has multiple meetings. He goes to Jerusalem four times in his life that the Scripture records. But the issue is still the same. There were some called Judaizers who were influencing the new churches. And Judaizers was simply a label given to Jewish people who claimed to embrace Christ as Messiah, but then wanted to maintain Jewish customs and practices like circumcision. Now, interestingly, you'll notice as Titus comes along, with Paul. And he mentions Titus because not only does Titus become a leader in the church, but he's a Greek who's uncircumcised and has not followed the rites and rituals of Judaism. Yet the apostles do not correct him because that's okay. He doesn't have to to be saved. That's an important part of this passage in this. He's a test case for the gospel, you might say. But the problem is that people are trying to add to the gospel message. Pastor Philip Ryken says this regarding this phenomenon. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. They elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance so that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something else. And usually what gets added to the gospel seems good in itself. Some particular experience of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. Some special ministry. Some methodology for having devotions, for growing a church or raising a family some distinctive doctrine or style of worship, some political or social cause, some way of doing or not doing what the world does. But for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to stand alone, Riken says. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. It's true what the hymn writer says. 
Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. What did Paul do to engage the struggle then? Look at verse 1. We see him seeking apostolic accountability. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. There's a model here, I believe, in, for ministry, at least in general. Paul the Apostle called, appointed by Christ himself, as were the other apostles. But the apostles did not place themselves in a superior way over those they ministered to. So that alone is a lesson to us, but something else, they're in company with each other. They're in tandem with each other. They go out as a team. I'm so grateful for that kind of mindset that exists within our church. I'm grateful every day for that accountability. And it's not because I have brothers who are elders, fellow pastors who say yes to everything that I offer up to them. Rather, it's the fact that I know that they'll speak in accordance with what the apostolic message is, the scriptures. And not just say yes because they like me. That won't help the, sh- the sheep at all. Instead, we have a company of elders who have mutual accountability. And I look at Paul, and he is Barnabas, and he is Titus. I've got Nathan and Brian. And I feel good about that. I think you can drop us in front of the gates of hell, and I would be confident with those brothers at my side. That's what Paul says as he has Barnabas and Titus there with him. Son of encouragement, the man who planted churches in Greece. He addresses in a letter later in his ministry. He seeks apostolic accountability. We see this in the way he works. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. And by the way, we know he's talking here about James, John, and Peter, because verse 9 identifies some of those who he consulted with. And he did so privately, at least at first. If this is the Acts 15 uh, account that it's referring to, then there was also a a public discussion that happened. But he goes to Jerusalem by a revelation. He didn't receive a memo. He did not hear someone in passing say, hey, by the way, we're meeting in Jerusalem. He didn't get a text message saying, come on to Jerusalem. We've got an issue to discuss. There's no email. So, So it's the direct revelation of God moving Paul to go to Jerusalem Again, showing the authority comes from God, moving the apostles to Jerusalem to speak and address this matter that Paul had been confronted with as he had been seeing churches grow in Galatia, in particular than all across Asia Minor. So they go to Jerusalem. Verse 9 says, when James and Cephas, Cephas is just another name for Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, uh, in other words, They were looked upon with great respect and reverence, and rightfully so to some degree, but in the verse we'll study next week, Paul has to confront Peter's error. So he's careful to not paint any man as above Christ. Important people, the apostles, but not above Christ. So he goes to Jerusalem and declares the gospel to them as a way of accountability. He's not checking the gospel for their correction. He's saying, what God has given to me is this message of the gospel. And they confirm that's the same message they received as well. He says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. You know, he's telling them what the message is he's giving. In order to make sure that he was not presently running with the wrong message or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Just a way of saying, as they heard this message, they recognized it was true. They did not have to add anything to salvation. It was Christ alone, faith in him alone. Do you see Paul's modus here? He travels with faithful brothers, Barnabas and Titus. He's quick to consult with the company of apostles, the elders as well. They discuss it and decide upon it. And look at the discussion that occurs and some of the decision that is made in verse 6 and verse 7. It tells us a lot about the strategy of the early missionary journeys. Verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't correct me. They didn't say I have a different message or, oh, Paul, you're deficient here. No. On the contrary, verse 7, it says, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised of the Jews. Then he notes in verse 8, very importantly, for his apostolic credentials, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Same gospel message goes to all people. In the same spirit ordained me as ordained Peter. No hierarchy here. They seem to be pillars. They perceived, it says in verse 9, the grace that was given to me. So they, they recognized what God had done. Please understand there's a difference here in saying that they ordained him and infused some special power in him. That's different. That's man doing something. No, what they did and what the church does is recognize what God has done. And that's what happens here. They recognized Paul to be an apostle of God, just as they are. And they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. We should go to the Gentiles, and they should go to the circumcised. Listen, how do we seek apostolic accountability? He's given us his word. This is the deposit of the apostles and the prophets' teaching. This is where we go. This is our authority. It's from this book that we gain our guidance we gain what we need for faith, life, and practice. In a real practical way, though, brothers and sisters, we have to seek the accountability of each other and be teachable. Be willing to place ourselves under the teaching of the Word of God, even when it rubs against a practice we may be involved with. This is what the apostolic message does. It's accompanied by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it changes us. Paul was willing in his struggle for the gospel to be accountable to the apostolic message, to consistently check what he was saying so that he would not be running or had been running in vain. It's that important. Too much is at stake. Notice what he does also in his struggle. He confronts legalism head on. In verse 5, when he's relaying what has been going on before he gets to Jerusalem, he says, to them, that is the legalists, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He recognized what were core issues and what were extra issues. And the gospel was a core issue that there wasn't a moment you can take to submit to another teaching. Because we already know where that teaching comes from if it isn't the core of the gospel. It's from an angel, for someone else, it's anathema. There are many things we can debate until Jesus comes back, engage upon discussion upon discussion. But as that relates to the gospel and the core message of the gospel, there, he says very clearly, he did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. The gospels, faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, legalism. Legalism is the belief in Christ plus the keeping of some rule or performance or some act. Ultimately, it's really belief in self. 
The gospel means all our righteousness comes from Christ. Legalism means all or even some of our righteousness comes from our works. This year, when the dandelions came up the first time, I couldn't get them with the mower because they didn't come up tall enough. So I zapped them double dose of the worst stuff they could give me at Lowe's. I mean, well, this is render everything. So I zapped it and got the original initial ones. But sure enough, two weeks later, what happens? They come back up. So I'm back out there with a double dose of whatever Home Depot told me was the hardest and heaviest stuff you could use. Two weeks later, which isn't that long ago now, latched on one of the ones on your hose and I sprayed in. I individually went to some of those dandelions and just soaked them with the poison. Diligence. For three weeks and we still have them in our yard. That's how diligent we must be with regard to the purity of the gospel. When we are lazy in this front, other things will creep in. They just will. They always do. They did not yield in submission for even a moment, Paul says. He got in the face of all sorts of people, even Peter, who some would like to place above him. Equality among the apostles. And when Peter was wrong, he was called on it. We'll see that. as Paul addresses him later in the same chapter. But notice what he is instructed to do here and then in the book of Acts. besides a similar request in the part of the apostles after they hear Paul. Verse 9, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is a wonderful, simple verse that shows us the relationship of mercy with the preaching of the gospel. Please understand, showing mercy, providing for the lack of material or physical needs that people have, that's not the gospel. But it should accompany the gospel. It should be our effort as God's people to help relieve the suffering of humanity as we give the message of the forgiveness of sins through Christ's death. In fact, too often we pendulum one way or the other. We think, oh, we just should preach the message. It's their soul that matters. And, you know, their, their body, whatever, they could be well-fed and healthy and so forth. But if they go to hell, I agree. Okay, that, that's true. There's an eternal component. But God has made us a body and soul nexus. He's made us the way we are. And he constantly tells us to address physical needs that people have. It's often the way God uses to open their hearts to the message of eternal life. So the pendulum cannot be over here just a message with no mercy or compassion, but it can't be over here where so many liberals have gone and they just simply say, we should just be humanitarian and give them these, their needs and we should help them with their physical wants and their material desires and needs and things that can raise their level up socially so that they can, and all the while they neglect the fact that those individuals are going to live for eternity somewhere and they have to have the message of the gospel. The message is right there, right down the middle. Bring them the message of the gospel with compassion and mercy just as Jesus did when he walked. We need to do better at this. We're trying. We've been involved with border and evangelism and mercy ministries for 10 years now because we believe that ministry on the border works to plant churches and address physical material needs that are real for those churches and the people that they minister to. But locally, we started a local outreach committee, and I hope that you all will take advantage of the various activities that we're going to put before you. We have one that's coming Saturday. At 9 o'clock, we're going to meet here. We're going to go to uh, the Second Chance Thrift Store, which is a thrift store that the City Union Mission has 
and it uses the proceeds from that to help help uh, run its mission and also provide material things for people who are homeless. So we'll go from nine to one and we'll work on sorting clothes in that in that store and help them get that stuff on the rack so that they can have that income and have that ability to provide for those who don't have it. Let's start getting involved with these things. That's a wonderful organization that gets it. They preach the gospel and they provide mercy and compassion. They see them as going together. They understand what the apostles would say to us. Only, they say, and you're going and you're evangelizing, remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do, Paul says. Remember, brothers and sisters, we've been greatly blessed. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it says in Corinthians that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that us by his poverty might become rich. So we adorn ourselves with mercy and compassion as we bring the message, the pure message of the gospel. So I say to you in closing, how do we engage in the struggle for gospel freedom in our day? Let me just give you three suggestions from the text. First, know the gospel, share the gospel, celebrate the gospel and its regular preaching. I always have mixed emotions when I hear someone say, all they preach about is grace. One part of me says, awesome. That's exactly what I want on my tombstone. All he preached was grace. I'm all right with that. The other part makes me sad. Because for a person to say that, they really don't understand their sin. They really don't get it. They may not get it at all. You cannot get enough water, can you? How much grace can you take? Christ has given us all himself. Celebrate the gospel and its regular preaching. Secondly, maintain a mutual accountability with each other under the, the word of God. As a body, we have opportunity to be together under the scriptures. We don't come to church so Jesus loves us more. We come to celebrate that Jesus loves us and encourage one another, especially when we need encouragement in the gospel. In fact, don't come if you think you're coming as a way to make God love you more. Please don't. Because that doesn't work. He doesn't love you more because of that. Come. Because God loves you so much. Be teachable. Learn from others. Thirdly, confront legalism in your own heart. It's the job of the, the leaders of the church to continually confront that in a corporate level so we don't need everybody running around and confronting everyone's legalism they see. Rather, what we need to do is confront our own legalism. And I want you to ask yourself, and you think of the gospel and all of Christ's merit, the merit that makes you acceptable to God, are you trying to add to that in the smallest way? Are you saying to yourself, I'm here. I came to the early service one week. God loves me more. Or I did my devotions five nights this last week. He must love If I can get to six, boy, will he really love In fact, this blessing occurred in my life. It must be because I did something here that got this blessing here. There's this voodoo doll sanctification idea where we poke this and blessing occurs here. That's not the gospel. All of our merit is filthy rags. Only the merit of Christ grants us a rightness with God. And it's been given to you by Christ through faith. You cannot add to it. You cannot improve upon it. You cannot make God love you more. You get to bask 
in what he's done for you. And I am sure, as James said, that that faith in Christ will then promote a zealousness for good works. Confront your legalism in your own heart. We see it then confronted in the church, the church wider. The gospel of grace is like water to us sinners. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray using Luther's sentiments about this passage. We can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is that, says Luther. Lord, grant us grace to struggle for gospel freedom in our own lives, in the life of our church, in the wider church of our Lord Jesus Christ, who bought us with his own blood. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us celebrate this fact of Christ's merit now being imputed to us. 146. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 as we also prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.